You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 35. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each one of each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And not not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan had bound for eighteen years, be loose from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? Is it like a grain of mustard seed? Or it is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nets in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. At that very hour, some Pharisees came to him, came to him and said, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to him, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who sent to it. How often would I have gathered gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for your word that you have spoken to us and your son that you have given to us in these scriptures. God, we pray now that you would help us to understand it. We pray that just as Kyle prayed that you would, as a result of this this meal that we are about to eat of your word, that you would cause us to see Christ more clearly, that you would cause us to love 
love him more with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray that you would do this work for your glory and for our own deepening good and joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all, everyone. Good evening and Happy New Year. We can still say that, right? Uh, I haven't seen many of you since the turn of the new year, so Happy New Year, Happy 2024. That's a wild thing to say, 2024. Uh, Next year, we can say that we will be one quarter of the way through the century. Uh, We are now firmly in the 20s which means with every year we get closer to the reality of avoiding the awkwardness of not knowing what to call that first decade. Remember that? Like, I, don't, I don't know what to call it. The knots, the 2000s. Uh, soon we'll just talk about the teens and the 20s and the 30s and the 40s. Well, I was born in the 80s, the 1980s, 1983, which means that I turned 40 last month. And part of being 40 is that I don't particularly enjoy being at big parties anymore like I used to. It's just a lot of people, and there's a lot of noise, and it's loud, and get off my lawn, please. Uh, I'm not sure that it's just an age thing, though, when it comes to surprise parties. Thankfully, my wife, nor any of you, planned a surprise party for me. My contention is that there are two kinds of people in the world, those who like surprise parties for themselves and those who hate surprise parties for themselves. For those who, like me, uh, just don't like the unexpectedness of surprise parties. Uh, We people uh, like things to be planned. Some people like things to be planned without them, to be behind their backs in all of the planning. But for people like me who loathe the idea, it's the very unexpectedness that makes the idea terrible. We like to have plans and make plans. We like to know what's going to happen and prepare in all sorts of ways. This is one reason why generally every week uh, I'll tell you what the next week's sermon text is. We'll tell you uh, in the weekly email what this coming Sunday's sermon text is, is so that we can prepare, that we can read the text together, that we can not just come to something like this in Luke 13 just and open this text cold. Often a month or so before finishing a book of the Bible, I'll tell you what we're planning to do next. Though tentative and subject subject to change, I have a spreadsheet with specific sermon texts planned through May of 2025. I like to know where we're going. I like to see where we're going. Well, in Luke 13, we're back to Luke, everyone. In Luke 13, in the rest of Luke, Jesus is going to continue to do what he's been doing. He's going to do and announce unexpected things, things that bothered people's expectations things that people were not prepared for. But he is telling them, you should be prepared for. Some things that people could see, other things that people could not see. And as we've been saying throughout Luke, what is down is up and what is up is down. And yet Jesus is showing us that the unexpectedly seeming, seeming un- upside down world that seems and feels upside down is actually the right side up kingdom of Christ. We must Try. We must not try to recalibrate Jesus to our reality, but we must re- recalibrate ours to the reality of Jesus. And so Jesus is going to teach and challenge the people of Israel in Luke 13 with their very expectations, with their understandings of the kingdom of God. And so we're going to separate this big chunk of text into three sections tonight, thinking all about the kingdom. First, what the kingdom is like. Second, whom the kingdom includes. And then third, how the kingdom comes. 
So first of all, what the kingdom is like, just to remind you of where we left off in November, at the end of chapter 12 and then at the beginning of chapter 13, Jesus has been telling the crowds, hey, you guys are really, really good at reading signs for the weather. You see this change in the wind or the clouds, and you know what will happen next around you. But what is happening now is that you are really terrible at understanding what's right in front of you here with me. You are seeing the Son of Man, the Messiah, teaching with authority, healing with miraculous power, and you are not responding. And then he gives a, a warning parable that Israel, the people of Abraham, whom God came to in redeeming grace and in love, whom he covenanted himself to in promise that he would be their God and they would be their people, that he would, they would be his people, that they should keep his law and he would bless them and by doing so through them he would bless the entire world. But Jesus says in light of that reality that they are in reality more like a barren fig tree. They are producing zero fruit. So of what good are they to the man who owns the vineyard, the tree, the people of Israel in this day are in imminent danger of the rejection of God because of their rejection of God. And so we're going to find Jesus here in verse 10 teaching in the synagogue. This will be the last time that we find Jesus in the gospel of Luke teaching here in these synagogues. And in what follows with the healing of a woman here, and then next week we'll see at the beginning of chapter 14, another Sabbath healing is almost a mirror to what we saw way back in chapter 6 with two Sabbath healings then. And then after hearing about and knowing the times and warnings of not producing fruit, now we've seen all of this teaching of Jesus, all of this prophetic authority of Jesus, this warning and rebuking of Israel. Now, with these Sabbath healings on either side of that huge chunk, will Israel recognize their anointed king? Will they recognize and worship the Messiah, the Christ? Here is another chance, another opportunity for repentance. Jesus is just so patient. And so he sees a woman while he's teaching who Luke tells us had been bent over. She had been unable to stand upright for 18 years. What an awful, what a nagging disability. We're not told why. Luke doesn't give us a diagnosis for what's wrong with this woman, but she must have been in chronic and ongoing pain and suffering. And so when Jesus sees her without thinking in verse 12, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. Now, as we thought about a couple times before about miracles, what is a miracle? Something that shows, that validates, that proves that someone is working on behalf of God. Miracles do not happen naturally. That is according to nature. You need a being or a power that is outside of or above nature. Something that is super nature. Something that is super natural to intervene, to insert themselves into nature for a miracle. Jesus has just done something that proves that he works on behalf of God. So what kind of work or effort has Jesus just done? He just put his hands on this woman's shoulders, presumably, on her back. That's all he did. He did nothing. It is the divine power that moves through him that heals this woman. What an opportunity for praise. The entire synagogue could have responded just like the woman did, glorifying God. Who is this man amongst us? the power of God coming to his people. 
Instead, verse 14, but the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. He doesn't even address Jesus. He just saw what happened and then he tells the people, he's doing some interference and saying, hey, don't come to him right now. Come back another day. There were 39 forms of work or labor that by these days, that tradition, not the law, but tradition had built to prohibit on the Sabbath. And according to this guy, Jesus' healing of this woman was one of those 39 kinds of work which the Sabbath prohibited. According to this guy, Jesus could have waited till tomorrow to Sunday, the day after the Sabbath to heal. And why not? She's been like this for 18 years. So what's one more day? But Jesus says, you hypocrites. Not just you hypocrite. He says the plural. He implicates everyone gathered here who seemingly agreed with the ruler. And he says, when you go home after this synagogue gathering and you find your ox or your donkey tied up at your house, what are you going to do for that ox or that donkey? You're going to untie him. You're going to take him to a, to a water source so that this donkey, so that this ox can drink. Is this work? Is the untying and the leading of the animal work? or labor, or effort? Yes. But you yourselves, you understand that your animals need to live. Just because it's the Sabbath doesn't mean that your animals must suffer once a week. They must, the, the, the Sabbath must be the worst day of their entire week where they don't eat or drink. This is the opposite of what the Sabbath was intended for. The Sabbath was, had always been intended for rest, for worship, for doing good, and for living well, for flourishing life with God, for flourishing life with one another, now free from toil. But instead, by these days, the day had become a day not of rest, but perhaps a day of stress, an actual burden on people, and not of relief. Constantly and subconsciously, perhaps consciously, everyone thinking, am I not only keeping the Sabbath, but I'm, am I also staying outside of all of these concentric fences that the leaders had built of tradition to make sure that I am keeping the Sabbath? And so Jesus says, you hypocrites, you people of double standards, what you intuitively know about your animals of love, of mercy and care, you ignore about your own people. You treat your donkey better than this woman, this daughter of Abraham. Verse 16, and ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? He's saying, what better time, what better day than the Sabbath day than to heal? This is a day of rest from physical toil. It is a day of redemption for flourishing life, a day of enjoyment of God and enjoyment of his people. You hypocrites! Do you not see what's happening? The bonds that Satan has had in this world for a millennia are breaking. The ice and the snow are finally melting and springtime is coming. The kingdom of God is invading this world and you want nothing of it because it is not the kind of kingdom that you've been expecting. How can I explain this? Jesus seems to say. Verse 18, he said, therefore, what, what, what's the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Now, a first century mustard tree is different than like the modern day flowering crop uh, that's more like a wheat stalk where we get our mustard from. 
But the kind of seed that Jesus describes here is maybe about the size of like a quarter of a, a corn kernel. So like very small, maybe even smaller than that. One that can, you can easily put on the tip of your finger, one that can very easily fall off of the tip of your finger. And then this tiny seed planted could then over many decades grow into a really wide and round mustard tree that could be as high as like 30 feet tall. Something very, very small and with then potentially indiscernible growth over the day-to-day, over the life of this tree, will grow into something that will bring shade and shelter. Jesus is saying, you're looking for the wrong things here, folks. You're looking for King David riding in with armies and swords to overthrow the enemies of God. But instead, the kingdom of God comes very slowly. It comes one person at a time, like this woman, glorifying God in her heart because of my healing power. You're still not getting it? How else can I describe this for you? Uh, Again, he said, verse 20, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Jesus describes a woman who put in a little leaven or yeast into what amounts to about 50 pounds of flour. She puts a pinch in, and since yeast is a living organism that feeds on the natural sugars of the flour, it causes carbon dioxide pockets to uh, expand this flour. And then when that flour gets used to cook into bread, then it causes the bread to also rise and expand. The kingdom of God, people, is like that. Got it? Jesus, being a little cryptic and dodgy here, again is saying that the kingdom of God comes from small beginnings and is often imperceptible. It is often invisible until you see the expanding and large-scale results much later. It does not come all at once like a king dominating and vanquishing his physical enemies. It does not come all at once like a zealous prophet enforcing the absolute right rule and obedience of the law, but through the healing and gracious touch of the Messiah, who comes with love and grace and compassion and mercy, causing people, as a result of his touch, to glorify God. And as the people whom Jesus has healed, they begin to spread and share the healing of Jesus with more and with more and with more and with more. Now, Years later, centuries later, millennia later, look what we have, a huge tree of shade and shelter, expansion, rising. But is it for everyone? Is this kind of kingdom for everyone? Is that what, if, if that's what the kingdom is like, it is slow and imperceptible growth that brings shade and shelter, it is healing and the, the flourishing lives of rest with God and with God's people? Is it that the healing and and expanding work of the yeast of the gospel now gets its way into the entire world so that all humans everywhere and in every place and in every time get to benefit from this? Well, no. Second, if that's what the kingdom is like, who does the kingdom include? In verse 22, we read that Jesus moves on through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem, which immediately should remind us way back in chapter 9, verse 51. Do you remember that? Luke wrote, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. He knows what awaits him in Jerusalem, and Jesus now sets his face towards it, determined, resolute to get there. 
More on that in the third point. But while on the way, someone asks him, Lord, will those who will be saved, or will those who are saved be few? They're asking Jesus if he agrees with a popular opinion that those who will actually be redeemed by God in the life to come will actually then be a very small remnant, that while the people of God might seem huge, the number of those who actually believe will be quite small. But in typical Jesus fashion, he doesn't answer the question, does he? He says, you know what? Strive to enter the narrow door. Matthew records Jesus saying something similar in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. There, Jesus is comparing a very wide road with a very narrow road. And most people walk on the wide road of ease and comfort, but the way to life is a more narrow road where there will be more obstacles, more difficulty. The narrow road leads to life, but there are few who find it, Jesus says in Matthew's gospel. But here, it's a narrow door, but where does the narrow door go? It's a narrow door into a master's house. It being narrow means that it's probably a bit more conspicuous. It's not the big, wide front door of the master's house. But even though it's around back, and only one person can come through at a time, it's very narrow. The narrow door is wide open. It's wide open. But the point that Jesus is making here in Luke is that it will not be wide open forever. There will come a day when you come and knock, but by then it will be too late. The master will say, wait, why are you trying to come in now? I don't know you. It's been wide open for a long time. But you haven't come in to be with me. You haven't come in to enjoy the feast. Why do you want to feast with me now? Jesus says, verse 26, then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught us in the streets. These people are saying, we were near you. We were connected to the gatherings. We were connected to the community of your people. The parties! Remember the parties! Of course you know us. You taught us in the streets. We're aware of the things that you've said. But they, of course, are not saying, you taught us in the streets, and we responded. We became your students. We followed you into your house. We became your people. No, they stayed at arm's distance from the master of the house. They wanted to keep their lives exactly the way that they wanted to keep their lives, keeping as minimal connection to the master as they thought possible, and then wanted to be considered the same as those who had actually followed him. They trusted in their family connections. They trusted in their social connections. They trusted in just their proximity to the master of the house without being actually close to the master of the house. And in verse 27, he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Similar to Matthew 7, when Jesus says, Depart from me, for I never knew you. You come to me like some end-of-life lottery ticket. You come to me for yourself. You don't love me. You don't trust me. You don't even know me, and I don't even know you. So Jesus says, Those who come to the Master in that day, who don't know him and he does not know them, the Master sends away to a place of both weeping a place of sadness, and a place of gnashing of teeth. When, you, when do you do that? It's like grinding of teeth. A place of pain, of judgment. It's like bite the bullet. Uh, Civil War amputation. You get a stick because you're just grinding, gnashing your teeth because the pain is so immense. Jesus says, Jesus says, that is the place for those who reject me now. The point of the door in Luke 13 is both that it is narrow it is inconspicuous, a bit more hard to find, but that it will also be shut. 
It doesn't look like what we would expect. It's inconspicuous. The salvation and wisdom of God that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 looks like foolishness, looks like shame. It is a place where we come to the end of our own road and come to the beginning of God's, of agreeing with God that he is the creator and I am creation, that I do not get to dictate what is good or best in my life, but God does. That entrance into the master's house are on his terms, that the ways in my life of the worship of self that are in contradiction to what God says, the, the lazy use of my time so that nothing is required of me, or the never resting use of my time so that there's no time left to be required of me, the use of my mind to despise those whom I disagree with, or to imagine experiences with others that they might serve me, both loathing and fantasy, both setting myself up as the one able to make demands of others, the use of my body to satisfy its appetites, to justify my desires, That's the wide path, the wide front door that the world looks for life through to affirm the self and to grant us our own desires, a door that leads to death. But the narrow door, the inconspicuous one, that is harder to find, it doesn't seemingly make sense to deny myself that God might grant me his desires. It's a door that actually leads to life. Way back in Luke 9, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will will save it. There's life in here. But the door will not be a door that is open forever. There comes a time for each person when there is no second chance, no millionth chance. No extra opportunity to hear the invitation of the master and respond, because remember, Luke is setting up this section as mirrored Sabbath healings surrounding the rebukes and the challenges to Israel in chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13. Will Israel continue to be the fruitless tree, or will they hear Jesus and respond? Maybe now's the time. Maybe they will hear and respond. But he says in the second half of verse 28, Hey, you're going to see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves will be cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. He's grabbed that original question of, will those who will be saved, is that number very few? And he's taken that and he's turned it upside down and he's made it not theoretical, not hypothetical, but immensely personal, immensely practical. And he said, the question now becomes, will you be amongst the number who are saved? It is not a question of how many, but the unexpected surprise of those who will be there, those who have trusted in themselves or those who have trusted in Christ. So many of the people of Israel who depended on their familial and hereditary privilege, their social and cultural proximity to the things of God without any personal faith and trust in him. And so who was there? Who was at this banquet? Well, people from all directions, from the entire known world, from all nations, east, west, north, and south. Jesus might as well have said to these people of Israel around him, be careful now. You're in very real danger of being on the outside of this party. But you know who's going to be on the inside? The Romans. Greeks, Egyptians, 
Syrians, Ethiopians, Spaniards, those who are in faraway Britain or Gaul, India, those in faraway East Asia and on the steppes of Eurasia. And those are just the ones of the known world of this time. People of all of those places, those who will one, one day become the objects of the leavening work of the gospel in their lives, the slow growth of the mustard seed as it, as, as it expands and grows, as individuals experience and agree with God about the reality of sin and their previous rejection of him, as individuals come one by one through the open door to experience the healing of the gospel and to belong, to be part of his people. That is what you should be concerned about, not how many. Nor should you be that concerned about, hey, isn't it going to be so hard to follow God that only a few of us are surely going to be around to make it in the end? Because it's real hard, right, Jesus? But we're serious. So can you pat us on the back for how serious we are? No. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Remember, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. And millions upon millions upon throughout the centuries, billions upon billions will come to believe, and the tree of my church will provide so much abundant shade and security for those who would come. So if this is what the kingdom is like, often imperceptibly growing but always expanding, and this is whom the kingdom includes, an unexpected number from people of all nations, how will this thing get kicked off? How will the kingdom actually come to arrive? How the kingdom comes. Verse 31, at the very same hour, Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now this, before we move on, this is a little surprising. May be unexpected for us, right? Because who have the Pharisees been so far in Luke? His opponents. They seem to be just the kind of people that Jesus has been rebuking, been warning, been condemning. But not all, not all of them. We must be so careful to not assume something to be true of someone individually because of something that we might have, been, might have seen to be true of others. This is something that is being, Kyle talked about catechism earlier. This is something that your, your phones, your social media feeds are trying to disciple you in every day, that you ought to consider an individual, not for who they are individually, but a wider group of people that they belong to. This is what all peoples of this racial identity are like. Black folks, white folks, Asian folks, native or Hispanic people. And more and more, we can assume the worst of people based on all kinds of other identities as well. Oh, you're from California? Oh, you're from Mississippi? Oh, you went to an Ivy League? Oh, you were homeschooled? Okay, boomer. Lazy Gen Z, whatever it is, and on and on. Now, praise the Lord, I think this isn't true of the members here at Christchurch. I think we experience a unity of supernaturally gracious and patient love for one another, of not assuming the worst, but we need to be careful to not assume that someone who is not exactly like you in one or a thousand ways isn't always a potential threat a threat to you, a threat to society, a threat to justice, a threat to future generations, or whatever. But here are a few Pharisees that before this verse, we might have assumed all Pharisees are the bad guys. They're the wealthy Bible teachers with social power. And here, a few come to warn Jesus to flee because of, 
of Herod. They're on Jesus' side. Later we'll see. Well, we know from other Gospels, Nicodemus. We know of other Pharisees who have come to Jesus. But Jesus says to their warning, their warning to flee, he responds in a way that is more confrontational than he's been with political power before. And he says about Herod, he says, hey, go and tell that fox. And he says, I'm going to keep doing my thing here, healing and teaching. I'm going to reach my end when I reach my end. I'm eventually going to get to Jerusalem because remember, he had set his face toward Jerusalem because it's in Jerusalem where prophets eventually must get to and it's in Jerusalem where prophets must eventually meet their fate. Jesus understands that Jerusalem is like a stand-in for the rest of Israel, the rest of the nation. It is the place of political and religious power. So goes Jerusalem, so goes the rest of the nation. And in following the footsteps of Jeremiah, Jesus knows that it is in Jerusalem that he will ultimately be rejected. And this both breaks Jesus' heart and it confirms his mission. He says in verse 34, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. This week I went down a bit of an internet rabbit hole about chickens, watching videos of hens gathering and protecting their chicks. It's amazing. Often just for warmth, the mother hen will gather in one by one, a chick one by one underneath her. You can't even see the chicks after a while. She's just on top, just keeping them warm, keeping them safe. And when there are threats, I watched watched several videos this week of dog and weasel attacks, even like this crazy, terrifying video of a king cobra getting into a chicken coop, coming in for some chicken nuggets. And then the hen, the hen either, she will either get all of the chicks behind her, and in the case of this king cobra, she keeps them all in the corner, and then they're just both attacking as fast as they can, and she doesn't give in. She doesn't back down, and she drives them away. Or she gathers them all up under her, and she gets real big, as big as she can, as feathery as she can, and she's basically telling this threat, you've got to come through me first. I even read of one mother hen who, after a barn fire, the next morning the farmer came in and found the charred remains of this mother, but all of her living chicks still alive under her, underneath her. How does the kingdom come? Like that. Jesus says, you go and tell that fox, that threat. Herod and the other leaders who are like him and who are just out to get you, Every generation has its own leaders who enshrine themselves, their own values, their own mores, their own laws, apart from the expanding kingdom of Christ. And Herod is here to advance his own kingdom and to consume you, to use you, to exploit the people of God and the law of God. And Jesus says, oh, Jerusalem, I wish I could have gathered you underneath me, but you do not hear. You won't come under my protection. You don't hear the the maternal clucks of warning and danger. You ignore me and you go on your way oblivious to the foxes and to the snakes and to the fire. But for those who do hear my voice, they come to be enveloped under my wings 
to be united to me in the cross of my coming death and resurrection, as Paul would later say over and over and over again. We might say all of Paul's entire theology to be in Christ, to be united to him. Jesus says to the threats of the world, to the threats of darkness, to the threats of rebellion, idolatry, and sin, bring it on, but you gotta come through me first. Jesus goes through the fires of his own death that, we, that he might save those who are safely trusting him under the shadow of his wings. But for those who don't, behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is quoting here from Psalm 118. In Psalm 118, the psalmist, though surrounded by enemies, looks forward to the gates of Jerusalem. The psalmist there says, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. It is a, a gate of salvation and it is wide open. Later in Psalm 118, the psalmist says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In Psalm 118, God rebuilds his temple. He rebuilds his city. He rebuilds his kingdom on the strength of one that is ultimately rejected by human builders. And because of all of that, then you can say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That doesn't make any sense. But it, it is the person who says, yes, the rejected one whom I am staking my entire life on. It is in his name that I come rather than my own, on God's terms rather than my own. And Jesus says that the house of those who do not understand this or trust in this is forsaken. Until you understand this, no longer in the years to come will God consider his people to be his people based on their ethnic or national covenant. But people of all ethnicities, of all nations who would come to God through Christ now come to him in a new covenant, a new covenant initiated by the blood of Christ, that Jesus, as the true Israel, the one who lived in perfect covenant with God, Jesus fills and consummates everything Israel was intended to be, an obedient son, a perfect law keeper, the one who is both just and righteous, the one who is a light to the nations, the one who is a blessing to the nations. And the gate here in Luke 13 is open for Israel, as many will still come to believe. We'll see this through the Gospel of Luke, certainly well through Luke's part two, the book of Acts, where many Jews are still coming to believe. But the gate then becomes open based on individual faith, on repentance, on individual accountability to all of us today, which is simultaneously both terrifying. Individual accountability that God knows all, sees all, expects all, wants all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind with every moment of every day. And it is also immensely reassuring that he sees all and he welcomes all. He does not condemn for individual acts of sin because he welcomes because of an individual act of obedience and righteousness. Not based on my obedience, but the faith my faith in Christ who was obedient. The gate of righteousness is only as wide as the person of Jesus. And now we must walk in and follow him, learn from him, know him, love him. If you have not come to him before, the door is open, but not forever. The door is open not based on your familial connections, not because of who your 
brother or sister is because of who your mom or dad is. The door of Christ is not open to you based on if you come to church every now and then or because you're an American or whatever that may be. The door of Christ is open to you because of his coming cross and resurrection at the end of this gospel. His face being set to Jerusalem. Him being defiant to the kingdoms and the authorities of this world that he might be obedient to the authority of the cosmos. If you have not come to trust him in this way before, or you don't feel safe and secure under the shadow of his wings, we would love to talk to you about what all of this means. If you have come to him, you are under his wings. You are resting there, not perfectly. You feel the tug of your heart to want to get away from him, but you are trusting in him. You think it is ultimately good to remain in his hospitable care, then abide in him. Stay there, and he will abide in you. If you haven't started a Bible reading plan for 2024, it's not too late. It's not too late. You can still start a weekend to January to read the Bible, to know God. Come and ask me for a few recommendations for just Bible reading plans of how and where you should start reading the Bible this year. Jesus wants to gather his people in, to be near him, to be safe and secure in him. In our Bible reading, in our prayer in 2024, all of that does not make us more precious to God, but it makes God more precious to us. Jesus is gathering his people in from north, south, east, and west. Of all parts of this city, north, south, east, and west, to gather a people to himself that we might enjoy the flourishing life of knowing God and the flourishing life of knowing one another, encouraging one another, praying and challenging one another to stay here under his wings, resting securely for eternity. Let's pray now that God would help us in this way in 2024. God, we are so thankful that you have not left us with no answer that you have not left us with our hands over our mouths with no answer to your goodness, your rightness, your justice, your holiness. We people who have rebelled against you in our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength, that you have not left us condemned, but that you have sent your son Jesus not to condemn us, but to save us, to redeem us, to forgive us, God, we pray that we might, as your people, rest in this reality as your adopted sons and daughters, those who are once far away, now brought near. We pray that being near to you, abiding in Christ and he abiding in us, that we might love you more with our whole heart, soul, strength, and mind, not out of guilt, not out of even obligation, but out of redeemed love, out of just overflowing joy and worship for what you have done in Christ and who you have made us. We pray that we might be a church who loves you, who knows you, who trusts you, who cares for one another, who meets with one another, who encourages and exhorts one another to more of this. We pray for these next few months as we continue through this gospel of Luke, that we might know and understand Jesus more clearly, that he might continue to disrupt our expectations, and that he might, and by your spirit, through your word, you might realign our reality to the reality of Christ. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. 
For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.